Welcome, welcome. Gather round. It's Massacre Radio number seven. Yes. I, of course, am your host, Members Only Dave. And, you know, I feel like I say this every week about how we have a great show for you, but it holds true because a little bit later on in the show, I'll be speaking with none other than David DeFalco himself, the legend, the visionary, and the personality. Talking about his career, his hobbies, and Dark Force Entertainment, so you absolutely are not going to want to miss that. But first, I'm speaking with writer-director Liam Regan, who's just another one of many who were inspired by trauma and ended up making their own feature film. Let's get right to it, shall we? It's Massacre Radio. Hey, my man, cool shirt. VHS is totally hot dog, you know what I'm saying? It really is forever. Hey, do you listen to Masker Radio? Hey, hamburger, hot dog, it's all the same, you know what I'm saying? What is Masker Radio anyway? Massacre Radio. Joining me now on the Massacre Radio hotline is none other than writer-director Liam Regan, who in 2015 directed his first feature film titled My Bloody Banjo, and he's also from Sheffield, the same town that gave birth to both the Thompson Twins and Def Leppard. How about that? Liam, thank you so much for your time today. How you doing? Hey, man. Uh, David, I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. And also, Sheffield is the home of the Full Monty. Uh, which is a uh, movie for, a movie that was made in Sheffield like 20 years ago, which I guess some Americans know about. I'm not too sure. Um, but other than that, it's known for My Bloody Banjo and Eating Miss Campbell. Uh, Liam, I'm just going to go ahead and cut to the chase here. You got the idea for My Bloody Banjo, and I'm reading this as written. It says, you broke your penis during sex. Is this correct? That is correct. Yeah, it was 2011. I snapped the frenulum on my penis. And uh, my girlfriend at the time thought she was on a period. And then when I pulled out and I tried to clean myself up, blood was still protruding from my penis. And uh, I never heard of the term banjo. It's slang of when you snap the, uh, the frenulum on the penis. And I just thought it'd make a great idea for a, uh, a movie. So I wrote a 17-page short film script, and it played a few festivals. And then I turned it into a feature-length movie. So I guess my next question would have to be, what position were you in when the injury occurred? I was definitely on top. I definitely felt really good. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like makeup sex anyway. It was like, (laughs) there was no protection involved. (laughs) So um, it's kind of cool in a way because the blood was a a kind of lubricant. You know, if anything, without that, maybe we wouldn't be talking right now. So maybe um, no protection is the way to go. Well... Who am I to argue otherwise? I think that's a great point. But I wanted to ask you about your inspiration behind filmmaking. It's well-covered ground that Toxic Avenger 2 was the first thing that really got you into wanting to make movies. But I know you've also mentioned in previous interviews that you also grew up on UK sitcoms like Bottom. What are some other UK shows you're into, sitcom or otherwise? You know, stuff like Father Ted and or Peep Show, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, Peep Show is great. You know, I also grew up, uh, there's a sitcom called Red Dwarf, which is kind of like a sci-fi comedy, um, which I think 
screened in America on PBS or something. I'm not too sure. But yeah, man, Bottom, The Young Ones. Um, I, I think that kind of humor uh, and, and also watching trauma movies really uh, warped my fragile little mind. So, Liam, I'm a huge music fan. And as I mentioned in the intro, you grew up in Sheffield, not too far away from Manchester. And the first thing I think of when I hear Manchester is the term Madchester and that whole scene. Do you have a favorite band or artist from that era? Well, man, like, I, I grew up in, like, the, the 2000s, uh, in a way. Like, I was, like, 15, 16 in, like, late 90s, early 2000s. So I kind of, like, missed that era of music. But, you know, Oasis is kind of cool. I think they're from Manchester. I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. See, I was very much influenced by a lot of American artists. Like, you know, I loved new metal growing up. So, like, you know, even though, like, uh, I'm from Manchester and it's, like, a, you know, a lot of music comes from there, I was listening to a lot of Yankee stuff, like Limp Bizkit and Slipknot. Okay, so Liam, according to my notes here, it says you grew up watching Laserdiscs. Yeah, man, yeah. I, I had to import Laserdiscs from America uh, to watch certain films because we couldn't get them here in the UK. Did you ever have a favorite release on Laserdisc? For instance, I know for the longest time the Midnight Cowboy Criterion was only available on Laserdisc, but are there any particular releases that stick out to you or that you watched the most back in the day? Yeah, man, probably like the Tromeo and Juliet Lays disc, uh, because it had like audio commentary, it had deleted scenes, and this was just before kind of DVD became a thing. So like there was never like this, uh, like on VHS, you just have the movie. To have like this 12-inch kind of like record, but it's, you know, it's silver, and you put it, you got to turn it over halfway through, and there's all these special features. Yeah, I'd say like the Troma, like Tusk Avenger, Tromeo and Juliet. Writer-director Liam Regan is my guest. So I want to ask you about modern-day Hollywood films. What were the last couple blockbusters you saw in theaters? And do titles like Cocaine Bear, Oppenheimer, and Barbie even excite you? You know, so like, yeah, no. The Hollywood mainstream movies don't really excite me much because these days they're very kind of sterilized and they're made by committee and to me, the more money you put in something, the less interesting it becomes. However, I have I have seen Barbie and Oppenheimer, and uh, I, I really like Oppenheimer. You know, I think Nolan's a good director. But mainstream cinema, in a way, I just it does nothing for me. So I got to ask, since you mentioned it and you have seen Barbie, what were your thoughts on it? I kind of thought the only two things it really had going for it were the production design and the performances from the supporting actors, i.e. Kate McKinnon, Will Ferrell. But how did you see it? Yeah, completely. The production design, the colors and everything, that was the only good thing going for it. I, I thought it was very surface level on everything it was trying to say, and it felt so kind of superficial at the same time, which is kind of poetic because it's about fucking Mattel, a billion-dollar company, you know, plastic dolls and everything. I don't know, man. Like, it, I think people are trying to hail it as some kind of white success as independent movie, when in reality, it costs, what, $300 million with the marketing and everything? I wanted to go in, I think I was expecting it to be some kind of uh, David Lynch Twin Peaks thing from the trailers, and I got something that was very kind of mundane and very safe. I also read online that off the success of the movie Barbie, Mattel plans to spin off more of its toy franchises into movies. So my question is, if Liam Regan had the opportunity to direct and adapt any toy franchise into a theatrical presentation, which one would you pick? 
Oh, wow. Shit. A toy franchise. Um, I don't know. Um, I'd love to do a Mr. Potato Head. Oh, shit. No, they did Toy Story. Okay, maybe not Mr. <laughs> Potato Head. Um, I don't know, man. Maybe. Hey, how about like, you, you know, uh, how about the like, doctor sets you get? You know, like when you play doctor mm-hmm. and you could do your own abortion and stuff. So maybe we could like bring it into the now and we could do our own self abortion and it'd be about pro-life or pro-death, I guess. I'm actually uh, coming up with a script right now that deals with abortion, so I think I've got abortion on my mind right now. What's something in the creative process as it pertains to filmmaking that you might not have cared about as much before that you grew to love over time? Um, uh, probably uh, producing, I guess. Like, uh, like so I came up with like writing and directing, but to me, there's nothing better than being very proactive and preempting things from happening i always have an idea if something's going to go wrong like even like an actor dropping out or being a complete prima donna um to have someone that can replace them is so liberating at the time because if not then it feels like they've got the advantage over you so to me just as a filmmaker, trying, uh, pre-production is like king in everything. I wanted to ask you a question as it pertains to the writing process. Let's say you get what they call in the biz as writer's block or what have you. How do you push through and keep on going? Because I know when I spoke with Ted Nicolau about his rewrite on Assault of the Killer Bimbos, he said he smoked a bunch of pot and kept going. But what works for you? Masturbation usually works for me, but apart from masturbation, just outlining the movie, like just kind of, to me, I give myself like 12 scenes per act, and I just try like write look life like each kind of scene, and then, you know, just take a break from it as well, man, you know, just kind of like watch other movies, and just kind of, I don't know, you know what, sometimes I just sit on the toilet, and by sitting on the toilet, I just come, so yeah, sit on the toilet. So tell me, what is your ultimate goal as it pertains to filmmaking? Are you working to eventually become a working director, producer? And where do you see your filmmaking career within the next, say, 10 years or so? I mean, I, I'd, I'd still love to be producing, writing, directing independently. Uh, if I'm able to get financing, that's fantastic. But it has to be on my own terms and be able to be completely creative, uh, you know, have creative freedom. I, I, I don't like the idea of, um, working in the film industry where I am restricted, but I understand when other people give you the money, then it's their say you're a director for hire. Where I kind of like the whole kind of uh, pretentious author kind of shit, where I can put my name on it and I can be like, look, I'm the author of this, and this is exactly how I want it to be. Uh, so I don't know if I can keep doing the same thing I'm doing right now. I'd be, I'd be very happy. How realistic is a sequel to My Bloody Banjo or any of the films you've made? I know in the past you've said you'd love to do a sequel or possibly turn it into a franchise or trilogy. Is that something that you are still considering? I've, uh, I've just made a sequel. It came out last year called The Eating Miss Campbell. And that is a, uh, it's, it's not a direct sequel to My Bloody Banjo. It's more of a spiritual sequel. So um, that premiered in London, Leicester Square, and it played, you know, at a run in LA, and it's at a run in uh, New York and New Jersey, etc. Uh, so that should be coming out on Blu-ray later on this year. But yeah, that is a spiritual sequel. And this abortion idea I'm kind of uh, cooking up, I think I'm going to cap off the trilogy, the Banjo trilogy. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I see that the Eating Miss Campbell Blu-ray is coming out soon here, but what else can the good folks at home and around the world look forward to out of your camp in the coming months? Yeah, well, um, I'm also refuse so refusefilms.com. Um, it's 
not just my production company, it's also a distribution label that I've started up. Uh, so we're going to be creating boutique releases with license to a few movies. So um, we should be making announcements soon on the website. But right now, our, our first release is the My Bloody Banjo Director's Cut. That was released a few months ago. It's, it's jam-packed with extras. It's got two versions of the movie. There's a making of documentary, which if you watch it, you can see that I just want to blow my fucking brains out because it's my first movie and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And people can argue that I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, uh, refusefilms.com or mybloodybanjo.com. Uh, if you want to pick up a copy of Mask of Video, has it? You know, get it from Mask of Video. Liam, let's get you out of here on a lighter note. What are some things that you like to do to wind down at the end of the day or to relax in general? You know, some people like to sit down with a nice stogie or crunch on a bag of pretzels, but what say you? You know what, man? I like to uh, eat peanut M&Ms and drink Pepsi Max. I mean, uh, you know, I I quit drinking like 13 years ago just so I can focus on the filmmaking thing or else I'd be still a mess because everyone in England are pretty much drunk. You know, we come from a binge drinking fucking culture. So uh, I just like to watch movies, man. You know, I, I like to collect Blu-rays and watch movies. Uh, like any other uh, movie fan, be it horror, be it independent, be it whatever, um, just watching films kind of works out for me. If people want to get in touch with you on social media, how can they find you? So, uh, you know, you want to search for Liam Regan or Refuse Liam. So instead of Refuse Films, it's Refuse Liam. Uh, you know, I'm on Instagram, uh, x.com or whatever it's called now. I'm still going to call it something Twitter and uh, Facebook. So, yeah, if anyone wants to reach out or have any questions, if they want to be a filmmaker or whatever, if they want any advice, I'm most happy to dispense the things not to do that I did that hooked up my start in making films. And maybe you can learn from me. Writer-director Liam Regan has been my guest. Go check out the Eating Miss Campbell Blu-ray, www.refusefilms.com. Liam, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, you too, David. Thank you so much for having me on. Massacre Radio. Know your destination. AOL keyword fart. Then show yourself around by clicking one of our many Massacre Radio links. It's the only place to find exclusive Massacre Radio web content. Download something new every week. Only on AOL. Log on. Oh man, this guy stinks. Wait, what? No, no. This message was brought to you in part by the St. Petersburg Tourism Committee. We'd also like to remind you that St. Petersburg is a division of Florida, a standard ground state. Thank you, welcome, and enjoy your stay. Your own tray, madam. What is that anyway? It appears less than grotesque, absolutely maddening. It's what she ordered. Here, have a bite. Well... You know, it's not at all what I thought it would be. Massacre Radio. Have a bite. Delightful. And now, as promised, it's an honor to introduce my next guest. You know him from his work in the shot-on-video classic Heavy Metal Massacre, as well as his film Chaos. And currently, he's been restoring and releasing films on Blu-ray, with Dark Force Entertainment. David DeFalco is my guest. David, thanks for your time today. How are things in your corner of the globe? Uh, you know, it's been busy, man, because now, uh, you know, I'm not directing movies anymore, but I, you know, have Dark Force Entertainment, so we're putting out, you know, 
all kinds of uh, different movies, physical media and, you know, streaming, just like these other labels. So it's a lot of work. I want to try and start from the beginning here, if we can. You grew up in the 70s and the better part of the 1980s. What are some of your influences that got you into wanting to be a part of making movies in the first place? What was the first thing you watched that made you say to yourself, I want to do that? Well, I mean, I was obsessed with horror movies ever since I was probably like five years old, believe it or not, which, you know, probably comes as no surprise to anybody. And I, I really loved the drive-ins because I lived on the East Coast. And I, I was going, my, you know, my parents, mostly my mother would take us to the drive-ins when I was a little kid, me and my brother. So I was seeing, like, brutal movies like, you know, Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was, like, you know, a real young kid. And I was, like, kind of enthralled with it. And um, I never really... um thought of of having because you know in the east coast you don't think about making movies or hollywood or anything like that because that's like a pipe dream you know what i mean so the way it all evolved pretty pretty crazy story you know now i couldn't have you on the show without asking you about heavy metal massacre looking back do you have any regrets as it pertains to the movie or anything you might have done differently perhaps I mean, there's a lot of, you know, misinformation about that thing. And, you know, that's another whole story onto itself. But, uh, you know, basically what I can say about that is that nobody knew what they were doing. And, you know, we just kind of wanted to make something that, you know, everybody was really young and, and wanted to make something, you know, make a, like a horror movie with a heavy metal theme. Because, you know, when that was made, you know, in the, in the, in the late 80s, that was... You know, heavy metal was huge. So that was, that was basically it, but nobody knew what the hell they were doing. So, and that was the end result, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is pretty comical because it's so bad. It's, it's actually, you know, it, it garnered, I guess, a, some kind of falling, which is kind of hilarious, you know. And that's the thing. Did you think a film you made some 34, 35 years ago would still be being talked about today? Um, wait a minute, I'm trying to, what, what year is 2018, that was made, because that was the other thing, like, a lot of people don't even know when it was actually made, because it was, it was actually, let me think, that was made in, I think it was made in, like, the, in, in 89, wasn't it, or what, what, what was, what was the supposed year it was made? 1989, by most all accounts, yes. It was never officially released. That's the thing. It never had a release because we, we tried to submit it to a few that, you know, obviously they laughed. You know, we, we sent it to Trauma and, they, you know, they, but, you know, now we laugh at Trauma because this, this stuff's garbage, you know. So <laughs> compared to the stuff I ended up making, you know what I mean? Now, I also wanted to touch on your film Chaos and the comments made by a one Roger Ebert about the film. In short, he said, don't make the mistake of thinking it's only a horror film or a slasher film. It's an exercise in heartless cruelty and it ends with careless brutality. Now, I can't help but feel like maybe coming from a guy like Roger Ebert, a comment like that would seem like a compliment to some degree. Looking back, though, do you have any lasting resentment over the whole thing? And how did that experience help you deal with criticism of your films going forward? I mean, you know, Ebert, may you rest in peace. You know, we he actually did the movie a great service because of him. It has his little niche, you know what I mean? So it's got its little place in cinema history because of him. But unfortunately, that movie, if the right, you know, studios had gotten behind it, which they could have, that could have been a huge horror movie. So the only the only resentment I have is it was it was robbed of being what, you know, it, it really should have been. Because, you know, at the time it was so brutal 
that everybody that saw was like, we can't release this. The backlash will be horrendous. But they complimented that they said it's unbelievable for what it is. But they felt that that, that would have been such a huge backlash that we couldn't get anybody to go with it. Although, ironically, that movie allowed me to get in with a lot of big groups of people that became fans of it, most specifically some of the WWE superstars. And that's how I ended up meeting Dave Bautista. He he actually watched the movie, really was impressed by it, really liked it, was blown away by it. And he, he had no interest in getting in the movie business at all at the time. He was the WWE heavyweight champion. He had been approached to do movies, but he really wasn't interested. And when he saw that, I had talked him into, I said, hey, man, you know, you got a great look and, you know, you should be, you should give it a shot. And, and he said, yeah, okay. And I ended up writing, producing and directing his first movie, which was distributed through Lionsgate. And then after that, um, I uh, introduced him to Ted Field, who was a you know he's a huge A level producer that discovered Vin Diesel basically. And I brought him to uh, his office in uh, Westwood, and we had a huge meeting. I'll never forget it to this day. Dave's manager was one of my best friends was there, Jonathan Meisner, and um, Ted was like, "Listen, man, you know you should keep." working with Dave and referring to me and he said, you know, wrong side was cool, which you did in that. He said, maybe one day I'll put you, you know, once you've got more experience on these small movies, he said he would put him in a, in a big movie. And lo and behold, several years later, he did, he put him in um, the Riddick movie. And then Dave ended up, that got him into the Gersh agency, which got him the audition for Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a pure miracle. He ended up getting that. And that was the biggest movie of like, I believe it was 2015. And now, you know, he's a pretty big name in Hollywood. I also heard through the Olive Branch that you're friends with one of the most iconic stand-up comedians ever, Andrew Dice Clay. What's it like being friends with the Dice Man, and how far back do you guys actually go? I met him when um, I put him in two movies, basically, you know, it was like uh, over 20 years ago when everybody was a lot younger. But uh, I put him in... um, Two movies, the first two big action movies I did, which was uh, Whatever It Takes and uh, Point Doom. And just, you know, we've become friends ever since. And um, I bump into him a lot. And I have his number. I've hung out with him. Like, you know, he's had me over to his house and when he lived in Beverly Hills. And, you know, he had an awesome club room he made in there. But he doesn't have that house anymore. But, you know, yeah, I've known him for years. I also know you're a wristwatch guy, David. What's the importance of an elegant timepiece? Yeah, I got into the diamond jewelry, and ironically, it's funny because when I was, like, really young in my early 20s making movies, like, if anybody ever said, you know, this would be a day when you'd be wearing, like, you know, custom diamond jewelry, I'd be, I'd be like, no way. It's like, I was never into it when I was really young, but then, like, when I met these wrestlers and I saw, like, they had the cool Rolexes and some of these, you know, like, UFC guys were all iced out, and I thought, you know, I got into the bodybuilding and, and, you know, took that to a pretty, you know, level that I was pretty content with. And then I thought, man, that could be the icing on the cake. And then I just kind of got, you know, bling fever and just kept buying. And that stuff, like, crazy expensive. Like, these rap guys spend millions of dollars on that stuff. It's insane, you know. So there was a time when I was by I got a bracelet, this big, thick bracelet, 14 karat white gold, and that's way over 100,000. But like I said, you can spend the sky's the limit on that stuff. You know, I got some rings and everything, but then I got sidetracked once again by something else that uh, caught my fancy. <laughs> and um, 
and all my money kind of went in that direction. And from one material item to another, David, it's my understanding that these days you drive a purple Lamborghini, which does 0 to 60 in 2.5 seconds. Not bad. What are some of the things you do while driving in the purple Lambo to flex on others? And tell us about some of the other supercars you've owned throughout the years. Basically, you know, I it was only recently that I started getting into those. And I always wanted a Lamborghini, like, you know, as a, within the last, like, I would say 10 years. But they're, like, it started, like, there's so much money. I kind of worked my way up to them. I, I had a, I started with a Bentley, which was cool because it was the sport version. That thing got a lot of attention. It was a beautiful white car and red interior. Then I got the McLaren Spider, which was badass. McLarens are awesome. I mean, it was like a quarter of a million dollars, which, you know, was a decent amount of money. They even go higher, obviously. But I always had my sights set on, like, the Lamborghinis, which to me were the best of the best. The thing was, at the time, you know, I go to this one dealer in Beverly Hills, and I had purple braided hair. And, they go, and the guy that's my sales guy is a really cool guy there. <laughs> He said, man, this, this purple one is you. And I said, well, I'll, you know, what's the deal with that? And they said, well, it's not for sale because it was basically, it was new, but it was the, it was a factory demo because they had like all these huge upgrades on it. And they were using it like, you know, for people that came in and were considering buying it, they were using that as a, you know, we'll take this for a ride and see what you think. You know, I'm like, wow. But he said, you know what, though, I'm going to go talk to the owners because this car like fits you to a T. And he came back and he said, you know what, they said that sells me. I'm like, oh, great. You know, and uh, <laughs> but the thing is, like, I, I traded the McLaren and the Bentley and had to still come up with a huge, that's how much piece of cash, that's how much money this thing was. Talk about some of the attention one gets when driving around in such an automobile. I mean, they're insane, but I'll tell you what. I mean, they are the most incredible, especially in a town like this. You literally can't go 10 feet in that car. I mean, I can't even describe to you what it's like. I mean, the cell phones coming out from all angles. People are going bananas on the side. It's like, it's like, it's like a god just rolled through town and everybody's going nuts. You get everywhere you stop, people come up. I mean, I, I don't know how, like, you know, some of these people that own those cars are, you know, regular looking guys or, you know, business guys or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm an intimidating character, you know, and sometimes people come up that I have to say to beat it, you know, and they do because otherwise, you know, they'll get a beat down. I mean, that's just how it goes, you know, and it's crazy, but it, it's awesome. I mean, the, the, it's the most incredible thing I've ever owned in my life. It's definitely the most prestigious car on the road. There's no question about it. Okay, now, in a general sense, what does it mean to be, quote, the demon? You know, I mean, the whole demon thing came out of when we did chaos and, you know, the fact that I had gone into it as one type of guy and came out of it another because that movie, you know, to me, conjured up the real dark forces, you know. And, and it's just figuring out, like, the energies that exist and, and, and tapping into them, you know, to... Because the more you understand about things we don't know about, you know, I've been able to figure out some pretty amazing things, you know, and that way I've used that in my own life to, you know, to have things happen the way they do. It's kind of hard to hard to even explain, but you know, there are things. A lot of people they go through life and they they don't even think about certain things that I've kind of tapped into, and that's why. They may be in the in the situations they are in, you know, but when but there's so much more out there that we don't know about. And then the more you try to figure it out, 
the more you can enhance your stay, you know, while you're alive here, which isn't for a very long time, you know, when, when you do the math. David DeFalco is my guest. Have a couple more questions before we get you out of here. Now, you seem pretty spry for your age. What are some of your ancient secrets or inside tactics that you implement to maintain your vitality? Uh, you know, it's like that's another thing. People are all hooked up on age and everything, and it's like I've been training my whole life, and you know, it's not about you know. Again, I try to keep myself out of what you know the you know what what regular people and um, you know fall into because there's many pitfalls with that. You know, there's certain people that are, that just don't fit the usual mold that that is out there. You know, and I feel like I'm one of them. You know, I can't even tell you exactly where it all came from. And I mean, I know like, you know, obviously, yeah, I have trained, but I know, you know, I know guys who have trained more than me and they're in shambles. So it's, it's, it's a lot of it's unexplainable. I mean, I try to figure it out through unconventional ways. In other words, like I use signs of things that happen and, you know, unusual things that go on and, and try to figure out, you know, what's really going on. But but it's only, you know, you can only dare, dare, make theories on things because there's so much we just don't know. And, and you know, there, there aren't a lot of answers on certain things. But I can tell you this much, like, you know, there are many things that we, we don't understand. And, and there are many people that, you know, can tap into things that are way, way beyond what, you know, the average person could ever even comprehend. So you got to look at it in that way. Let's get to Dark Force Entertainment. I know recently you released the Black Gestapo, Dandy, and Dead Pit on 4K Blu-ray. What would you say is the most fulfilling thing about the work you do with Dark Force Entertainment? And what are some of the releases people can look forward to in the near future? We're cranking them out like crazy now. Um, it's uh, it, it's awesome because, you know, making movies was very fulfilling, obviously, like you can imagine. You know, each one is a piece of Hollywood history, and, you know, there's a lot of film when it came to that. But, you know, it's, it's very hard to really make that a, you know, a successful business unless you really hit on the A level, which I wasn't able to do, unfortunately. You know, I, I got into this whole thing with the labels, and actually, I believe this is what I was really meant to do because I was such an obsessed collector when I was a kid. I've been able to translate that, you know, into this business, which is which has allowed me to, I think, I believe, have a lot of success with it. But there's a lot of um, fulfillment putting these out because you're, you know, it feels like they're my movies, even though I didn't make them. I'm sure anybody that has a label will tell you the same thing. When you get the rights to these and you restore them and you, you know, re-release them on high def, you're basically giving them a new life. And that's why there are fans of these, which I didn't know existed either. I thought they were just distributors. And then I heard fans. I go, fans for what? Distributor? You know, I didn't even understand it. But now that I do, it's something that was really a perfect fit for me. And, you know, this is the sixth year of Dark Force. It's been been a huge success you know it's a real business we have uh three lines so far of uh of these movies uh the, the main blu-ray line which is up to number 43 uh which is coming out which will be the next uh, single edition release and that one is probably going to be uh velvet smooth which is a black exploitation movie we're at number 20 of the drive-in releases which has been a really successful uh blu-ray series that's coming out next month with uh sinner's blood which is a 70s biker flick and rivals which is a cool uh early 70s movie as well 
we're at the number five of the 4K because 4K is the new big thing. And we got uh, Julie Darling, which was the uh, devil's daughter, I believe, or daughter of death, I'm sorry, starring Sybil Danning. So we're cranking them out and, and you know, they're cool. We also, you know, stream some of them. and But the main thing is the physical media, but it's a great business, the best thing I ever got into. David, if the good folks at home and around the globe want to get in touch with you on social media, how can they go about finding you? Probably the best way is to go to the um, either we have uh, Instagram that we use and uh, or the uh, Dark Horse Facebook page, which is on the both on the Dark Horse Entertainment. You can directly message us at those, or uh, there's an email address uh, darkforcedvd at yahoo.com that uh, you can use that too. But social media works pretty well because we usually respond quick to that. David DeFalco has been my guest today. Thank you so much for joining me, David. It has been a blast. Yeah, sure. Maybe we you know, can do it again sometime. Massacre Radio. Hey, so that about does it for episode number seven. Thanks again to all my guests, Liam Regan and David DeFalco. I have been your host, Members Only Dave, saying thank you for listening, and I'll talk at you next week. I snapped the frenulum on my penis. <laughs>